Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the podcast. Today we have returning to the show the one person in 270 plus episodes that I've ever been willing to put on a jacket and tuck in my shirt for, the former bishop, Dr. N.T. Wright. How are you, sir? Good, thanks. Uh, Yes, it didn't occur to me that you were doing something so formal as that, but it's nice to be with you. (laughs) Well, I mean, I don't anymore, but that first time I met you in person, when uh, you were in Tennessee, I I dressed up for you. I mean, I haven't since then, but that one time, I mean, that was... That was a big gesture on my part. Absolutely. <laughs> Much appreciated. <laughs> well, you know, you're so kind. Now, we've just realized that there's a little bit of a time zone difference because over in the States, we do daylight savings time 13 days before you. That's uh, certainly this year. Yeah, I don't know that it's always the way, um, but I, I can never remember when it's going to happen. I always have to look in the diary or look online and find out. And uh, routinely, sooner or later, somebody in this family goes to church on the wrong, at the wrong hour on a Sunday morning. <laughs> but so hopefully that won't, it'll be, well, for us it's Palm Sunday. Anyway, whatever. <clears throat> well, can I tell you a secret? So I'm a pastor and I, um, I had one of our associate pastors preach yesterday because it was daylight savings. And that Sunday just comes around so early in the morning. Uh-huh. I'm not even sure if, if God says you need to go to church on that day because it's such a rough morning to wake up an extra hour early. <laughs> I feel like I, I need to read more of your books to make me not so shallow. Well, and you know what? When you get a little bit older, it gets easier anyway. <laughs> it's, hard, okay, well. it's hard to sleep in. The, the, the further you get past 50, the harder it is to sleep in. That's been my experience anyway. Okay, well, that's some, something I've looked forward to in um, 15 <laughs> in years. I can't wait for that. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so I got uh, your, uh, a copy of your new book uh, yes. last week. and. <laughs> I don't mean to butter your bread too much, but this is one of my favorite books I've read in the last year. I oh, absolutely love what you did. This is so, so you seem to vacillate between the very technical academic stuff and then your pop level stuff, which your, your pop level writing is still a few levels above my pop level writing. But it is it's so accessible. It seems like you took that um, the Paul for Everyone commentary series and then just doubled down on that and made this beautiful biography of Paul. So when you decided to write this biography of Paul, what was the goal you were trying to accomplish with it? Well, um, for me, uh, it's a matter of trying to enable people to understand what Paul was doing in his context. I had a model in mind, not that, uh, not that I've matched that model, but, but the loose model. That there is a British novelist called Robert Harris who's written a lot of novels, but three in particular about Cicero, the great Roman statesman, philosopher, uh, lawyer, etc. And what Harris manages to do in those three novels is to get you actually to feel what it's like walking around first century BC Rome and it's a dangerous place and it's an exciting place it's an artistic place there are uh, robbers waiting in the in the shadows there are angry people and mobs and so on and you you feel what it's like being Cicero so that when then Cicero makes one of his great famous speeches the things which schoolboys in my country still study in their Latin lessons um, you, you understand why he had to make that speech and why it was both necessary and dangerous and what his wife would say to him when he got home afterwards and so on and a sort of sense of three-dimensionality about it and as I was admiring Harris for being able to do this I thought wouldn't it be wonderful to do that for Paul so to get inside his world that you understand the multiple dynamics that are going on which are quite different from what we've often imagined I mean the letters of the Galatians being a good example if you've read the book you'll know mm-hmm. 
that I don't think Galatians is simply all about the old um, 16th century question of do we or don't we have to do good works to get saved. That's not what it's about at all. It's much more complicated than that to do with local Jewish politics and local Roman imperial ambitions and all the theology mixed up inside that. And so for me, it's really exciting to get that fully rounded, multidimensional picture of Paul. And, and that's what came across to me, especially the idea. I mean, there's a bunch of them that stand out. Uh, Torah and temple, mm-hmm. uh, zeal was one of these reoccurring themes. Like I had never really understood. I, I think it's the Philippians 3 text where he talks about, as for zeal, I persecuted the church. Yep. yep. What he had in mind. And you, you point back to uh, two Old Testament figures that Paul used to exemplify what zeal looked like. Yeah. Well, in fact, th- this is a regular Jewish tradition which goes on all the way into the later rabbis where the great Old Testament figures of Phineas from the book of Numbers and Elijah from the first book of Kings were the zealous ones. Phineas, when uh, the, the, the Moabite women were sent into the camp to disrupt the Israelites' life on their way to the promised land and because um, Balaam's curse had, had turned into a blessing so he had to use a different tactic which was basically to send in the, the Moabite women who will lure the Israelite men away from worshipping Yahweh and and lead them into idolatry and so on. And Phineas goes into the tent and spears an Israelite man and a Moabite woman in one blow. And he stops the plague, which is the moral plague, but also the, the, um, the health plague, which is ravaging the Israelites. <coughs> And uh, God makes a covenant with him. And in Psalm 106, when it refers to that, it says that it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And that phrase only occurs twice, as I'm sure you know, in the Old Testament. That once in Psalm 106 and once in Genesis 15, where Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And what does that mean in Genesis 15? It means that God made a covenant with Abraham. That's a phrase which haunts Paul. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. And you can see him role modeling Phineas in dashing off to to get these crazy Christians and and either kill them or bring them to prison or certainly drag them back to Jerusalem to face some sort of justice. But then the other character is Elijah, who of course confronts the prophets of Baal and uh, uh, basically tricks them, lures them into a a trap and then has this great contest and uh, many of the prophets of Baal end up getting killed. And then of course Elijah has to run away um, because Ahab says, okay, there's a price on your head now. And that's when he goes to um, Mount Horeb, to Mount Sinai in Arabia, the mountain of God, um, basically to say to God, hey, what on earth's going on? I thought I was doing your work, and now this has happened. And that's the bit where in Galatians, Paul actually echoes what God says to Elijah. God says to Elijah, go return again to Damascus. And he tells him he has to anoint a new king, and he has to anoint a new prophet. And Paul says, I went away to Arabia, and then having been extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers, which is um, more or less a direct allusion again to First Kings 19, and then God, God tells him to return again to Damascus. And so Paul is telling his own story in the form of a Phineas story, an Elijah story, a zeal story. Um, and uh, particularly, of course, when, like Elijah, he had to go and say to God, okay, I thought I was doing the right thing, and now what's going on here? And he is told to go and announce the anointed king, the Messiah. And I find that enormously powerful, powerful psychologically, powerful historically, powerful exegetically. It really gets you into who Paul thought he was and what Paul thought he had to do. 
and it explains why he would do something that we would in the 21st century be aghast that he was doing. It, it made perfect sense using the text that he had, the understanding of being zealous, and to put it into context. It, oh, it, so I, I love what you did. You mentioned also that uh, Paul was obsessed with that phrase about it was credited as righteousness, but that meant covenant. Yeah, yeah. When, so when Paul is thinking about righteousness, like you just mentioned uh, earlier in the conversation, we typically insert 16th century issues of grace versus works and how are we made righteous uh, by the faithfulness yeah. of Jesus. Yeah. There's a different question going on in Paul's mind than what we're asking today. Yes, that's absolutely right. And of course, there you're touching on one of the big sore points in uh, late 20th, early 21st century um, biblical scholarship, particularly actually in America, um, <clears throat> because the, the so-called new perspective has, has challenged the, the Reformation tradition on its interpretation of Paul um, and said, actually, we're getting Judaism wrong and we're getting Paul's critique of Judaism wrong and we're getting Paul's positive teaching wrong as well. Because, uh, as I think most people agree, righteousness Righteousness is a relational word, but the key relation between God and humans isn't how people feel about whether God feels near or not. It's, it's the covenant, um, and everybody in the Old Testament world knows that. Everybody in Paul's Jewish world knows that, that, that God has chosen Abraham and his family to be his people for the sake of the world, and that gets worked through. Indeed, in some of Paul's favorite passages, think of Isaiah 49, which he comes back and back and back to in his writings, um, where God says to the servant, I have given you as a covenant to the peoples. And that becomes part of Paul's new vocation, that he is the one who is to be a covenant person himself, and is through his preaching of the gospel to extend the covenant uh, to, to the nations. As he says in Ephesians 2, you were strangers to the covenants of promise, but now were once far off, have been brought near in the blood of Christ. That is for him what it's all about. Yeah, and so now it's all people. There's this view of God bringing all people in, which when I think of Jew-Gentile stuff, the default picture I have in my head is uh, black-white racism in America. The, yeah, yeah. In American, that's, that's the issue I see of like division. And so that's typically understood to be based on ignorance or fear or hatred. But Paul's division and separation from uh, the Gwyn, the, the Gentiles, isn't based on that. It's on his understanding of faithfulness to Torah. Yeah, and, that's exactly right. Sorry, go No, 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 carry on. Uh, but, but I was going to say, you, you have this big theme, like temple and Torah. Those are the, the two big things that are probably going on in Paul's head. And Torah being almost like a traveling temple. Uh, so let's, I want to get to the Jew Gentile stuff, but I feel like we need to start with temple, Torah, and then we'll get there. Yeah. So the temple was a place where the invisible world of heaven and the, the, the visible world of earth came together. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so we see that in the Lord's Prayer. How, okay, first of all, like, how do we ground that idea in Jewish texts? Are there texts that really connect the dots on those, or is that something that we're having to gather ourselves? Um, yeah, I think here's one of the major growth areas of biblical scholarship in the last um, 30 years or so is in our understanding of how Second Temple Jews understood the temple and how they were reading Genesis 1, how they were reading Exodus 30 to 40, how they are reading uh, all sorts of other subsequent passages, because the thing that has come out very strikingly, and I think I bring this out a bit in the book, is that 
the tabernacle in the wilderness and then the temple in Jerusalem were seen as microcosmos, a little world, as though they are looking back to Genesis 1 and saying God wanted to dwell on the earth with his human creatures. Um, creation itself was a heaven plus earth place with this creature, uh, the image bearer, in the middle. That, that's, Genesis 1 is already uh, has the echoes of a temple. It's a heaven-earth place with an image in it. That is a temple. Um, but then everything goes horribly wrong, and then the tabernacle in the wilderness, and then the temple in Jerusalem are pointers pointing forwards to God's intention to join heaven and earth once and for all together and that's what Paul says in Ephesians 1.10 Ephesians is absolutely soaked in temple imagery that, that God's intention always was to draw heaven and earth all together all things in heaven and earth together in the Messiah and he's now done that and then by the spirit that is now effected in the church the Jew Gentile church so this idea of heaven and earth coming together of God dwelling with people and, and, and even through the spirit in people on the face of the earth this this is what um, has transformed Paul's Paul's way of looking at everything really, uh, and that goes back deeply into um, that whole ancient Israelite and Jewish view of creation itself as a temple and the temple itself as a as a new creation, or perhaps we should say as a signpost pointing forwards to the eventual new creation. So that, and, and I think you see that. Paul's theology of incarnation, of who Jesus is, of how we talk about Jesus being divine and human, we have to understand that within that same matrix, that it makes sense within a Jewish world to think of heaven and earth coming together. And then you realize that not only Paul, but also John, and in the synoptics, Jesus himself, um, they, they, they are using the temple as a way of trying to understand this extraordinary mystery of Jesus as the living God walking around on earth. And the Torah, in your language, is almost like this portable version of the temple, a movable temple that they can carry around with them by obedience to this. So this, again, changes our view that the Old Testament, this is about, like, you do enough good stuff, and therefore you're going to be on God's good side. But Torahs invite us into experiencing the temple as wherever we go. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we have to remember that the word Torah, meaning law broadly, um, can't be reduced to what we mean by law in ordinary secular English or American speak, um, because the Torah is the five books of Moses, uh, Genesis through to Deuteronomy. And Genesis through to Deuteronomy is the great story of Israel with the actual law, the Ten Commandments, and the ancillary laws that, that kind of go with it and back it up. Um, as part of that but only part and the point of Torah is here is the narrative which shapes who you are here it's God's narrative for the world God's narrative with his people for the world and here's how you can be part of that and how you can be a loyal member of that and and yeah I mean in the Middle Ages things got so twangled really with um, all the different theologies and philosophies that were going on that really the only question that some people could see was um, do I have to behave myself do i have to do good works and they're thinking about purgatory and all this other stuff which has no foothold in the bible at all so a lot of our great questions that come to us from the 16th century or even particularly not least the 19th century when there's a lot of this going on um, we have to put them back
back into the pot called history and stir it and see what comes out of it better next time. That's not to say those questions don't matter. It's not to say that we can now surreptitiously say we're justified by works, not faith, or anything silly like that. It's to say, let's see the thing whole. Let's see a big, rounded picture. And there we find Torah as this great narrative which says this is who you are and therefore this is who you must be. And Paul sees all of that fulfilled in the Messiah. Uh, For me, one of the great storylines in the New Testament runs from Romans chapter 9 verse 6 through to the end of Romans chapter 10 when Paul starts with Abraham and he finishes with Deuteronomy 32. He is telling the story of Torah and in the middle of it, Romans 10.4, he says that the Messiah is the goal of Torah so that there may be righteousness for all who believe. So that we, we've got the story of Torah and now this new family, this Christ family, this Jesus family is enfolded into that same story by faith this is a far far richer picture than the old either ors of do i have to do good works or don't i yeah it's it's definitely much deeper and it's richer and it's a better picture i think of like the fullness of who god is but before jesus saw that torah was fulfilled in jesus when he was being zealous persecuting the church he saw himself as being phineas or elijah in doing right by ensuring that people were living into what the Torah called them to. What do you think he was trying to accomplish? uh, That's that's absolutely right. Um, I'm not sure I quite understand. uh, Your your question is almost in two parts. Can you just phrase that again? Yeah, so he's he's embodying this. He's like he is the new Phineas or Elijah. And as he's doing that, what do you think Paul is imagining that he's accomplishing oh, by uh, persecuting the church? There he he is accompli- uh, accomplishing, he thinks, the purification of Israel. I mean, this is one of the things which we've learned through word studies in the last generation that the word Judaism in Greek Judaismos doesn't mean what we mean by the word Judaism. If we say the word Judaism, we think of a religion or a people, uh, the Jews, um, but Judaismos uh, in Greek, which um, we easily translate as Judaism, but actually it's misleading because that word is an active word. It means Judaizing. It means going out and trying to persuade or coerce people who are Jews but are not behaving very well as Jews into behaving better as Jews, in other words, into keeping Torah, and particularly if as Elijah was faced with people worshipping Baal, if Paul finds that he is faced with people who are, uh, as far as he's concerned, denying Torah by following a crucified Messiah, how absurd can that be? He is going to bring them into shape. And this all has an eschatological goal, namely that if all Israel really came into line, then maybe the true Messiah would show up. And this is the irony of Paul persecuting those who are following the Messiah, as he later comes to realize, because he thinks that by them doing that, they will hinder the coming of the Messiah. So there's a complete turnaround back to when he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. But it's very much, it's all about the coming of the kingdom, the coming of the Messiah. Um, What does Israel have to do to be the people to whom God will eventually send the Messiah? So if Paul thinks they're out of line, he's going to whip them into line. And uh, and then, of course, that's when he himself gets turned around in no uncertain terms. Yeah, and so he eventually becomes the the one called to preach the Gentiles. Yes. Which has to be so ironic that the the one who was the most zealous of of all Jewish or one of the most uh becomes the very person who goes to the Gentiles, which would have been unfathomable for 
for pre-conversion, yeah, it's all of Tarsus. Absolutely. Though, of course, as soon as you see it, you see it all over the place. You see it in Genesis, you see it in Deuteronomy, you see it in Isaiah, you see it in the Psalms. I mean, again and again, the Psalms, and Paul draws on these, are full of saying, uh, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Um, the, 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 the blessing of Abraham is coming upon the Gentiles. That The Psalms are full of that, that the one God is God of the whole world, not just of it. He's not a local private God. So if this one God has now revealed himself, then this must be for the sake of the whole world. And actually, um, I think it particularly Psalm 2, um, which is quoted again and again, or referred to again and again in the New Testament, not least by Paul, that the nations do their worst. God exalts his king and says, here's the one. Now, you Gentiles, you come into line. And so it's the Gentiles' turn to have to come into line, which means for Paul, recognizing Jesus as their true Lord. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's just fascinating because like I just said uh, a few minutes ago, I used to think of the Jew Gentile issue as analogous to blacks and whites in America. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that's based on hatred and ignorance. Yeah. Uh, but this was based on Paul's view of faithfulness to God. And then he has this earth shadowing yeah. exper- shadowing experience. And now all of a sudden he sees yes. what God's yeah, it's, it's a fascinating thing, and you're right, we do tend to see the Jew-Gentile issue in terms of uh, ethnic or racial issues of which we are aware today, and obviously in the modern history of America, that has been massive, both with um, the sad stories of Native Americans from three or four hundred years ago, and which, uh-huh. with the much more recent stories in the last two hundred years of um, uh, African Americans and all their uh, very difficult history, and we in Britain, who of course were complicit in a great deal of that, um, we, we kind of shudder at that, and then we realize we've got a pretty checkered history ourselves. So, um, it, But, but we, we then miss two things. First, we miss that the Jews were told in Torah to be separate because the Gentiles were worshiping idols, so they were behaving in dehumanized ways. They were violent. They were uh, went into all kinds of evil practices, um, like uh, sacrificing their children and so on, and that uh, the Jews regarded all of this as well if they're worshipping idols what more can you expect so they are kind of less than fully human and so um, there's this sense of we do not mix with them we, we, we have maybe Gentile friends that we know down the street but we don't eat with them we don't share meals with them we don't share table fellowship with them there is a, there is a spectrum of Jewish practice on that as there is indeed today um, you know many Jews to this day if, if they go out to a meal will ask to have a kosher meal uh, other Jews won't worry too much about that. But So there, there was a spectrum in the ancient world as there is today. But it, it was a command, and it was a command because God was working in and through Israel for the sake of the world. As Jesus says in John 4, salvation is of the Jews. So they had to stay loyal to the one God. But then, that's, that's the first thing that's very, very different from any ethnic prejudice we know in the world today. Um, uh, but, But then the second thing is that Paul believes that with the death of Jesus, the idols, the, the dark powers that have enslaved humankind have been defeated. So Paul can go to the Gentiles and say, God has dealt with your sins too by uh, the death of Jesus, through which the dark lords that have held you captive, like Pharaoh in Egypt holding the children of Israel captive, they 
they have been overthrown. So you have nothing to lose but your chains. Here's the gospel, believe it, and you can escape all of that. And so because of the death of Jesus, the old taboo that separates Jew from Gentile has gone. This is what's at the heart of when you talk about the truth of the gospel in Galatians 2, when Peter is frightened to go and eat with Gentiles as he had been doing. And Paul says, no, this is a denial of the truth of the gospel. Either Jesus has died and those Gentiles are no longer sinners, or Jesus' death meant nothing. Um, And if the Gentiles are no longer, in technical terms, sinners, because through belonging to the Messiah's family their sins have been dealt with, then there is no reason on earth why Jews shouldn't share fellowship with them. So it's, it's, it's the, the, the commandment of the Jews to be separate, and then God himself dealing with the Gentile problem, which means that that command can now be transcended. Yep. Um, anyway, you do such a great job of picturing that and helping us see it and experience it. Uh, so I, I love the book. I love what you're doing. I only have one, one critique. Go on. And that is... I wish you would have had this book out one year ago. I wish you would have, because let me tell you what, last summer I took a, uh, I think it was a little less than two week trip from Texas all the way to Athens. And I spent almost two weeks uh, doing research and filming spots for a series that I did with a friend of mine entitled Christians Make the Best Atheists. And we went to different temples. We went to uh, uh, the Parthenon. We went to... um, Corinth, we did the, yeah. uh, the Temple of uh, Aphrodite there, we went to Delos, we went all over and to wow. the Temple of Poseidon. What fun. And I, it was so great, and I wish your book would have come out a year ago, because it would have <laughs> helped me write this series. Well, uh, you'll have to go back and do another one. <laughs> I, from your mouth to the ears of God, let's make that happen. But you do some really good stuff about the idea of, you know, Christians were atheists uh, because they didn't believe in all the other gods. Yeah, and and, and I, think, I think one of the things we have to remember then is, and I think you may, uh, Americans may understand this more easily than we do in Britain, in the many parts of America, when I, I travel frequently in America, on a Sunday morning, you see all these hundreds and thousands of cars parked outside churches, and uh, half the American population are heading to church on a Sunday morning. And if suddenly all the people in your street who were doing that if they all suddenly stopped, you would probably notice, why aren't the Smiths over there going to church? Why aren't the McDougals down there going to church? How much more in a small town, and if you've been to Athens and Corinth, you know what what ancient Corinth was like. It's a tight-packed little ancient city. Everybody knew everybody else's business. The only people who have any private life are the very rich or the very aristocratic. Everyone else, stuff, stuff is going on on the street. And if suddenly... Certain families within that tight-knit community stop going on their processions to worship at the Temple of Aphrodite or the Temple of Caesar or any of the other temples. If they don't turn up for the festivals and the processions and the sacrifices and so on, the neighbors notice and the neighbors talk. Because in the ancient world, if a bad thing happens to a city like an earthquake or a plague or a famine, then it's obvious that the gods must be angry. Why would the gods be angry? Well, it's those people down the street who stop worshipping them. So, of course, they're angry. Uh, 
And this goes on being hurled at the Christians for two or three hundred years. Tertullian, um, 150 years after Paul, says whenever anything bad happens, people are shouting, oh, Christians to the lands. In other words, it's the Christians' fault. Get rid of them because they have stopped worshipping the gods. So for us to say, oh, somebody's an atheist, it's well like, you know, that's a lifestyle choice or it's his opinion or her opinion or whatever. But in that world, if somebody stops worshipping the gods, this is a major socio-cultural affront to the whole of the rest of the community. And so when Paul says, as he does in the Areopagus address, that, that um, those temples are a category mistake because the living God doesn't live in places like that. Oh my goodness, this is major stuff. This is deeply subversive. It is Jewish, it is Christian, it is in that sense atheistic in the, in the, uh, in the eyes of the pagans. Would you be fair to say, would you think it'd be fair to say that the feeling that those who called Christians atheists in the first century had towards Christians, because like you said, if there was hardship, they would blame it on Christianity, would be similar or would be akin to the Phineas story and the Israelites blaming the Moabite woman for the hardship in their camp? Well, possibly. That's a bit more complicated because the story, as you know, goes back to Balaam and his donkey. And uh, Balaam is hired by Balak to curse Israel. And uh, Balaam knows he's going to have to say what God puts into his mouth. But um, uh, so... Uh, so so uh, he, he tries to go with him because he wants the cash. Balak's going to pay him. Yeah. But then wh- when he finds he can't because God gives him oracles of blessing, um, then he, he resorts to plan B. So I don't know that you can blame the Moabite women. And obviously the story has been written up and edited over yeah. generations subsequently so that it's easier for anyone in later Israel to say, oh, it was those pagan women. And um, one suspects it was a bit more complicated than that. But um, <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah. Fair enough, fair enough. When, um, uh, so, so Paul is at, uh, in Athens, he's at the Areopagus, he's yep. making this speech, you know, God doesn't live in temples made by human hands, and yep. just over his shoulder is the yep. m- most amazing temple that's right. that anyone had ever seen. Yep. Uh, clearly, that's going to create some conflict between him and the people around him. Obviously, like you described, it was a trial situation, and obviously he did well defending himself because he wasn't killed, but... There were some very harsh statements that he would have made to non-Christians about the authenticity of the one true God. Yes, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because that speech has often been quoted as though it's a it's as though it's a piece of sort of rationalist apologetics, where Paul starts off with the altar to the unknown God, and then he quotes um, from one of the Greek poets, etc., etc. People say, "Oh, he's trying to start with their culture and build up to, to Jesus." And clearly, as you rightly say, he isn't doing that at all. He says, um, "Actually, your culture's got it all wrong." Um, he does find points of contact, if that's not too loaded of theological phrase, um, the altar to the unknown God and so on. But it's really important, I'm glad you drew that out, that this is not an apologetics exercise. It is a court. It's the highest court in the land. And he's been accused of introducing foreign divinities, which is one of the charges that got Socrates killed five or six centuries earlier. So Paul is effectively on trial, if not for banishment, possibly even for his life. Um, But but so in that context, to say, now, let me tell you um, what you are ignorant worshipping, there's something much bigger and greater, and the Almighty does not live in houses made with hands. Yeah, he, he is 
saying all these wonderful works of art were just a category mistake. And, and that's not the way to win friends and influence people. Um, but he gets away with it because his, philosophically and poetically, he is very astute. He sees which buttons to press so that they will have to say, oh, well, um, yeah, you're being very rude about our great temples, but, but maybe you have a point. Maybe, um, maybe if there is a God who feeds us with everything, then that, will, that would all be different or something. What what lessons can we draw from from Paul, especially like in that speech there, or I guess the rest of his work, about how we are to deal uh, in a world that is not obviously uh, all worshipers of the one true God, yeah. and we live next door to people who have different religious convictions from us? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, of course, the ancient world is exactly like that. It was completely polychrome, and uh, Paul going around knew perfectly well many, many, many things going on, many gods, many lords, as he says in 1 Corinthians 8. And um, Paul says in Romans 12, you, you've got to be good neighbors. You've got to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. If, it, if it's possible, as far as it lies with you, live at peace with all people. That's a really important principle. You mustn't be known as the grouchy, grumpy people down the street. You've got to be the sort of people that folk like to have living on the street, even if they are then very puzzled and perhaps shocked uh, at what you both do and what you don't do. Um, and so th- th- there is this rich mixture that on the one hand, the Christians are to model a new way of being human, a way which nobody has ever imagined living like that, a life of love, a life of forgiveness, a life of peacefulness, a life of, of mutual sharing in, a, in a, a community that becomes like a new family, even though the people are not from the same family and, and they comprise many nations and slaves and free and men and women, etc. So all of that is shocking and different, and yet it works. And that's why Christianity spreads, because people see, who is this Jesus that, that is making them live like this? We want to know who this Jesus is and how it works and what he did for them. And, and so that, that's how the, gospel, how the gospel goes. But of course, you thereby trample on all sorts of people's vested interests, whether it's in Ephesus or Corinth. And people think, huh, if this stuff gets around, then our business is down the tubes because we make these silver shrines for Artemis or whatever it is. And that goes on. And you see it in Acts, you see it in Paul's letters. So it's on the one hand, living as cheerful, good citizens, being uh, the, the the genuine humans in the midst of a muddled world, and on the other hand, being seen as the oddballs who are who are uh, doing it all wrong and getting us all into trouble. Yeah. Okay, so Easter's coming up in a couple weeks, and what many uh, people in America want to hear is that because of Jesus, when you die, you go to heaven, and you don't have to worry about your sins causing you to go to hell. And as you spell out in the book, this idea of saved souls being rescued from earth probably comes more from Plutarch than it does Paul. Not that Paul would say you don't have an afterlife, or as you like to say, life after life after death. Uh, But the message that most people want to hear on Easter is reminding them that when they die, they don't need to fear going to hell. What do you think would be a better way for people to preach the good news of resurrection, especially in light of how Paul would understand it on Easter Sunday? Yeah, I mean, of course, I want to say if somebody is worried that because they have lived a bad life, 
then bad things might happen to them after death, then the Christian, the evangelist, me, a theologian, has got something to say to them, namely, God loves you so much he gave Jesus to die for you, and you are secure in him for all eternity. But then I would say that the even better news is that the old polarization of heaven and hell isn't how it actually sits. That in the Bible, the whole point was not that humans would leave this earth and go to heaven, but that God wanted to come and live on the earth. That's back to where we started, on the temple. This is all about uh, the God who made heaven and earth, wanting heaven and earth to be joined together so that the last scene in the Bible, Revelation 21, is the new Jerusalem coming down to earth so that, quote, the dwelling of God is with humans. It's all about God coming to dwell with us, not about us going to dwell with God. Although, of course, if somebody is about to die, there is a sense in which, as Paul says, my desire is to be with the Messiah, which is far better, Philippians 1. Um, so it, it, it's more subtle than, than people might think. But the main point is that God is going to bring heaven and earth together in an act of new creation and that when he does that, he will raise from the dead all those who have believed in Jesus, all those who are dwelt in by the Spirit of Jesus, so that they will have their resurrection as Jesus had his, to be part of and to be instrumental and active within the whole new creation that God is going to make. Now, the great thing here is that New creation actually began when Jesus came out of the tomb on Easter morning, and it continues through the work of the Spirit through the church in the world. So we don't have to wait for the new world. We can produce, and in fact we're commissioned to produce, signs of that new creation, even in the midst of the old world here and now. And that's where the tension often comes. Um, so it's a totally different message from, oh well, um, be assured that one day you'll die and you'll go into the great blue by and by. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd rather people believe that that than that they were militant atheists or Marxists or whatever, but that needs radical reformation in the light of what every book in the New Testament is actually talking about. Yeah, yeah. Like you mentioned, there's a tension of the old world where things haven't changed, there's still darkness, there's still death, there's still uh, heartbreak, but your metaphor of signposts, which you've used for years, which I absolutely love, there are signposts that say this isn't it, that the new heavens and the new earth are are breaking out. It it seems like maybe that might be the reason that there's the ubiquitous suffering and darkness that is still present has caused people to feel like what happened in the life of Jesus wasn't earth-shattering enough. And I know Paul saw it that way. How would you help people move past that, though? Yes, I think the Gospels themselves are written to help us move past that. And part of the difficulty is that we have read the Gospels as little Sunday school stories about something else Jesus did, so there's a nice little truth to be learned at the end. And I I would want to challenge people, not least in Lent and Eastertide, to sit down with one of the Gospels, anyone, and maybe each one in turn, and read it right through at a sitting, saying, how does this whole story work? Because the whole story, in each of them in quite different ways, very interesting that this was happening in different ways so soon, is telling the story of how evil did its worst and the living God took that worst onto himself in the person of Jesus. So that the story of Jesus going to the cross is a story about betrayal and hostility and kangaroo courts and uh, one disciple betraying him, another disciple denying him, etc., etc. And you can see all the evil in the world in all its nastiness and sordidness dumping itself on Jesus and he takes the weight 
and he dies under that weight. And then the, the task is uh, for the church to be commissioned to be the people through, who, through whom that, uh, that achievement is then implemented in the world. And of course, it's very interesting that it's only really in the last two, three hundred years that people have said, oh, look at all the evil and suffering in the world so there can't be a good God, can there? And the early Jews and Christians knew perfectly well that there were earthquakes and floods and famines and uh, deadly diseases, etc., etc. And, and that isn't a big argument against the existence of God back then. The reason it's become an argument now is that in modern Western culture, we have shifted into our modern version of the ancient philosophy called Epicureanism, which treats God or the gods as being a long, long way away and probably not involved in the world, and then mocks them for being unable to do anything in the world. So actually, the idea that, oh, look at the evil in the world, therefore there can't be a God, what sort of God are we talking about? We're talking at best about a deist God, a sort of celestial CEO. But actually, in the Bible, Jesus isn't a celestial CEO. He's the one who comes into the midst of the mess and the muddle and takes its weight upon himself. And that is the answer both to the problem of sin and to the larger so-called problem of evil. That's good. I think that's, that's my Easter Sunday uh, sermon right there. So thank you. Thank you for writing that. You, you have a good section about comparing the uh, Epicureans and the Stoics that would have been the backdrop for what Paul was doing and the influence yeah. uh, of, of many of the people in the Vax Populi when, when Paul was speaking. So I, I love the background on that. I love the background you did on uh, Paul's singleness. Um, yeah. I, I, I've never connected the dots, and you, you give out four options for that. You did yeah. stuff on yeah. um, Paul's silence. Like, there's a time between... Uh, he was speaking, and then he wasn't speaking. I, yep. I love how you yep. do that. And one of the things I, I really loved was the the idea that you perpetuated of Paul. He's a tent maker. He's dealing in this uh, world that has a bunch of different stories that are that are the yep. the telos, the the, the myths that people live by. And he's working out this new way of being human amongst the conversations he's having day in and day out as a tradesman. Yep, that's right. Um, he, he is, and and it, it, it's you know when we think of Paul preaching or Paul teaching, um, then oh, sorry, excuse me, half a moment. Oh, um, there we are. <laughs> sorry, you gotta have the car keys. Some, Don't worry about that. Somebody needs some car keys. <laughs> um, hey, that's important. That's important. That is right. Um, that uh, I love the the wholeness of Paul's life. That he is. Uh, not simply getting up in the morning, going off and, and teaching a class and coming back home again. He's actually out there on the street. He's, he's uh, a tradesman. He's working hard with his hands. It's a hot climate. It's sweaty and he's working with leather. It's going to be a smelly small room. And people are coming and going and arguing. And, and aren't you the person who dot, dot, dot? And Paul says, well, yeah, I am. But actually, you should be thinking about Jesus, not me, and he starts to tell them about Jesus, and the guy's thinking, hey, I just came in here to order a new tent, <laughs> and, and, and you, I, I just love that, that rich mixture of life which is going on, and then the local, the small local Christian community, and, the, and the, the Jewish community, seeing this man doing all this stuff, and realizing uh, that, that this, is, this is what it's about, this is a new way of being human, which actually meshes with the world we already know. Yeah, it's brilliant, and it gives you the a new way to experience Paul's writing, the book of Acts, all of that. I, I had a friend, uh, I was talking about this book, and my friend said, oh, I don't, 
I don't want to read it. I don't like Paul too much. I've got issues with Paul. Uh, yes, yes. Be, because they have some narratives that they have built upon that, like, this yes. is who Paul is. Quite, quite. And, and I feel like your book is helping people dispel some of that. So I, I, uh, I really hope so. I really hope so. I mean, it's, it's very much the same in the UK as well. We have people who, who absolutely say they can't stand Paul. In fact, what I think it is, is that somebody probably when they were young um, told them, oh, you must believe this or you must do this because that is what Paul did or said or something. And they don't like that. They resent it and they, um, they're cross with that Paul, and probably they've never actually sat down and tried really to understand him. Um, that's that's really the problem. And it's not just they don't even have the tools to understand Paul because you can't just yeah. pick up yeah. a document and think this is two thousand years old. I have all the insight and under the cultural understandings to make sense of this. And no, quite, quite. That, that, that's right. I mean, there are lots of bits of Paul that you can get hold of. You know, the the, the great yeah. poem about love in First Corinthians thirteen would be a good place to start. Although even there, you need to understand a bit of the now and not yet of the gospel to see what he's getting at at the end. And the little letter to Philemon, we can understand this sensitive and delicate handling of a tricky situation with a master and a slave. Um, and some of the other great passages, like the end of Romans eight. Uh, most people can read that, and even if they don't believe it, they will have to admit that it's just an extraordinary, passionate piece of of poetry, um, soaring, soaring above the, the 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 terrible things that happen in life, and nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, people can get hold of that, and then when they get hold of that, then they will be teased into thinking, well, hang on, how does the rest of this piece work? Um, what, what's what's it all about? And then they can find their way, hopefully, step by step into it. Well, I appreciate the work that you're doing, helping people step into that and giving the background. Thanks for writing this. This was not even an interview. This is me just telling you how great the book was. So, um, <laughs> Thank you I very hope that's much. All right. That's great. Yeah. It's good to talk to you again. I'm sure our paths will cross again one day. Yes, sir. All right. Take care. Have a good day. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.